we are in, in the Acts class, and um, um, I'm still managing to function. <clears throat> I don't know how, but anyway. No Bible class Thursday night. We usually do not have Bible class on Thursday nights because so many people travel, families here, so many things are going on. It just gives everybody the opportunity to spend time with the family. I know some people blame me for that, but no, you get to spend time with your family. It gets you an opportunity to use a little uh, impersonal love and uh, care for your family. Starting uh, Sunday, a week from this coming Sunday, the younger children, starting at age 8, will be in here on Sunday morning. Uh, with the family, so this is an opportunity parents need to start teaching your children a little bit about how to uh, behave in uh, in church during the first part of church, and then following the offertory, they will go back to their uh, Sunday school class. Then the other major event is on Tuesday, December the 4th, which is two weeks from tonight. There will not be a Bible class because that is when the annual pre-trib rapture study group meets in Dallas, and we usually take our equipment up there. Hey, Bruce. We usually take our equipment up there and um, to record those those sessions. And then our Sunday, December the, 5th, December the 9th, uh, Christmas brunch, and on December the 15th, the teen Christmas party. And if you have any questions about that or want to help, uh, talk to Jeff Phipps. Jeff is uh, uh, here tonight. Actually, not virtually. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. For some reason, I don't think this is my microphone is staying in place tonight. That's a little better. Uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. A few mo- opportunity to use First John one nine if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to focus upon your word and to reflect upon your grace. Father, we're particularly remind, um, particularly mindful of uh, Billy Jones' surgery yesterday. We pray for her, pray for her recovery, pray for the doctor's uh, skill and wisdom in treating her and that she will uh, uh, recover completely from this surgery and pray for Alan and his strength and, and uh, taking care of her during this time. Father, we pray for others in this congregation who are facing uh, life-threatening illness and disease. We pray for their families, pray for their strength, pray for their stamina as they go through chemotherapy treatments and other forms of treatment uh, in the midst of their jobs and busy lives, that they may be able to uh, do what they need to do and that they may be a faithful witness for you as they face these trials and adversities in their life. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight and as we look beyond your word to what took place and what we can glean took place in the lives of the uh, apostles other than those mentioned in the scripture, that we may be strengthened by the fact that, that you worked in their lives in much the same way you did in the lives of those recorded in scripture as your word went out throughout the world and continues to do so. That it is not up to us, it is not based on 
human effort, human energy, but it is based on our, our desire to submit to your will and to be used by you and to do what you tell us to do, to accept the challenge, to be a faithful witness to those around us, both with our lives and with our lips, to teach them and proclaim the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of opportunities to witness and to just lay groundwork, what I call pre-evangelism, there are many things that we can get involved in in life that are just opportunities for us to get to know people and to build relationships with people and to build relationships with unbelievers. And uh, I remember a time when I was taking an evangelism course in seminary, and I have always been critical of evangelism classes in seminary because, like many things in seminary, it's an artificial environment. I understand why they do what they do. It's a lot like uh, the training that occurs in the military when you have to go through various uh, artificial type of training scenarios, FTXs, things like that, because that's how you learn to do things. But sometimes uh, some seminary professors would come up with some, at least what some of us thought were rather Mickey Mouse assignments. But I remember one particular uh, seminary professor, and seminary professors always sort of tend to make you try to make you feel guilty about things like that, like this, and would say that, most seminary students don't have one friend, one significant acquaintance that they spend any time with that's an unbeliever. And I thought, well, of course not. We're taking, back in those days, you couldn't go, really go part-time to Dallas Seminary. We're taking 16 hours a semester. We're in class from 7.30 in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we have eight to nine hours worth of homework to do every single day, uh, other, even the days when we don't have class, and we are supposed to be involved teaching or having some kind of a ministry in a local church. When in the world are we going to get to know anybody outside of that schedule? It's like going to, in fact, I've been told by men who have gone to law school and even by a couple of men who have been through Harvard Business School to get their MBAs that that was easy compared to the THM schedule at Dallas Seminary, especially back in the uh, 60s and 70s, that that was a rigorous course. So it's like, when, when are we going to get to know these unbelievers? And, and pastors and those who are in full-time professional ministry tend to be surrounded by people who are believers. That's what we do. That's our, that's, that's our professional reality. And there were times in my life when I would think, you know, I really haven't had the opportunity to witness to somebody I knew was an unbeliever in terms of somebody I, I had a um, personal personal acquaintance with or knowledge with uh, because I just don't come into contact with um, with a lot of unbelievers other than, you know, Jose the bagger down at HEB or, or whomever. And um, and they need to hear the gospel too, and it's good to kind of build, you know, get to know those same people. You see them all the time when you go to the store. But in recent years, as I've been involved with APAC and other uh, pro-Israel and Israel support organizations, really have gotten to know a wide variety of individuals in the Jewish community. And last night we had a, an interesting uh, marathon session here, and I got to hand it to uh, about four or five members of this congregation who came last night because they really did a good job. And don't go telling me y'all fell asleep now, Barb. 
This week's Thanksgiving, y'all can be thankful that your pastor doesn't start services at 7.30 and go till 11.30, and that I don't teach for two hours straight and ramble through most of it. Now, some of you may think I do. I saw that look, Jeff. Some of you may think I do, but, uh, boy, last night was a real test of endurance. All those years sitting in Bible class was excellent training because I happened to be on the front row, dead center, every eye on me as I was uh, sitting in front of the speaker. But the speaker was Rabbi Zadok, who is the brother of, uh, I think his name's Henry, I may be mistaken, Zadok, who is the owner of Zadok Jewelry here in Houston. Some of you are familiar with that. And and the rabbi is in, from Jerusalem, lives in Jerusalem, has a number of different uh, things that he's involved in there. And he's an Orthodox rabbi, and he spoke for two hours. Now, this event was originally designed as just an event when he was going to come and talk. But things changed a little bit with the uh, attack that Israel had on Gaza last week. And so the event just sort of took on a life of its own. And a lot of people in the Jewish community found out about it. One thing led to another. Next thing you knew, there were a lot of different people that were uh, going to be saying something or speaking or... Wait a minute. Let me get this attached again. Okay. A lot of people who were going to be speaking on, you know, short things. And then there was a little music and West Houston Bible Church crowd got to see praise dancing last night. Joe. I bet that blessed your heart. A little praise dancing, a little praise and worship music. And uh, so it was interesting. They had uh, a, lot, a lot of different stuff was going on. But it was a great night to just to focus on the importance of support for Israel. Mayor Shlomo, who is a consul general from Israel, the consul general for the Southwest, uh, spoke a little bit about what was going on there. Uh, a few pastors uh, spoke. Uh, I spoke for briefly about uh, uh, the significance, his, history and significance of Christian Zionism. I had to speak. This is a uh, sort of a, although I think everybody there pretty much speaks English pretty well, they, it's, they do a lot of bilingual, a lot of ministry in the Spanish community, so everything is translated. So I took my personal translator, Pastor Orlando Salas, with me. And, um, and so that was a good training for uh, for him to do a little <clears throat> on-the-spot translation like that, and uh, he did a good job, and that was that that went real well. But what was interesting, the reason I brought this up is number one, it, these are great opportunities to get to know that I've seen over the last five or six years, leading by example, of of building these relationships, and how many people in the Jewish community, rabbis, and other leaders in APAC that came to this event last night that I know, and that that came up and said very nice things to me after I spoke. That's not the point, but it, the point is that, that building those relationships builds a testimony, and that's important. Uh, another aspect of this last night, which I did want to address, is the interesting talk given by Rabbi Zadok. I've never heard an Orthodox rabbi talk before in a way that was really understandable. He basically gave an exposition of the Scripture based on a literal interpretation of Scripture. What was interesting was his selection of passages. So I'm just going to give you a brief example because he spoke for a little over two hours last night, and I'm certainly going to cover this in about less than ten minutes. So I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 
uh, 26. Leviticus chapter 26. Now, Leviticus 26, this is a chapter that y'all ought to have marked up because this is the five cycles of discipline. These are the stages of discipline that God promised to take Israel through if they were disobedient to him. And the, um, the, this disobedience begins to be outlined starting in verse, uh, verse 16. Or actually, verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you despise my statutes or if you, your soul abhors my judgments, then I will do all of this to you. And then it begins to outline all of these things. And so you have the five cycles of discipline listed there. The fifth cycle begins in about verse 27, goes down to about verse um, 39. And he covered a, a number of those, which he related to the first, the first um, exile, the destruction of the first temple, which I thought was, was pretty accurate. I think it applies to both, but he was trying to make a case that this was first... The, the, the first destruction, the first temple, the uh, destruction of the first temple, and that Deuteronomy 28 was destruction of the second temple. I'm not sure about that. But he stopped at verse 39, and then, um, then he skipped down to the uh, restoration passages. Verse 42, 43. 44, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, who I brought out of the land of Egypt and the side of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Then we went from there to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, we have the blessings of obedience, and then starting verse 15, it's a summary of the five cycles of discipline, the curses on disobedience. And then, as you come towards the end of um, the, that chapter, talks about the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods. And went through some of the, several of those passages, skipped chapter 29, skipped chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, and started in verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. What did he leave out? Did you catch that, Darlene? He left out the repentance passages. He was trying to apply these restoration passages of the Jews to Israel today as, as the restoration. These are millennial restoration after the Jews repent and turn and come back to the Lord. But he skipped those passages, which I thought was, was very instructive. And I'm really looking forward to a time when I can sit down and, and discuss this. But I saw two things going on there. Number one, he was really handling the text as literally as he could. And number two, he was really avoiding having to deal with the repentance issue so that it was very obvious. But the third thing I saw was that in this church age, you can sure tell when the person who's handling the Scripture has a spirit of God or doesn't. And that was I thought that was, that was very interesting. But across the spectrum of Judaism, 
usually you, you, what you get is not any, anybody who's going to try to deal with the text in any way like what we would. So I thought that was positive because somebody like that, you have a frame of reference to have a discussion with them because you're both interpreting the Scripture um, in, a, in a literal manner. So that was, uh, that was very interesting, but I just thought I would point that out, and you all can be thankful in the Thanksgiving that you have a pastor who doesn't stand up here and I may get long-winded at times, but I don't go for two hours without a break, ignoring hints. They even had an organist at one point started playing some music, <laughs> like it's time, it's curtain time. <laughs> he said, stop playing, let's keep going. <laughs> anyway, okay, in Acts, we're taking a little bit of a pause in our forward momentum in Acts as we conclude with Acts chapter 12, as I said last time to focus on God's choice men, these, these 11 men, 12 if you include Judas Iscariot, that the Lord Jesus Christ chose as his disciples, his disciples, that those who would study under him. The word disciple basically means a student, a student, someone who studies under a master rabbi, master teacher, someone like that who is learning from them. It is, the word disciple is not a synonym for a believer. In fact, we know that a disciple may not have been a believer because Judas Iscariot was not a believer, and yet he was considered a disciple. But a disciple could also be, uh, sometimes the word disciple was used almost as an equivalent for a believer. Other times it was used for a believer who was a, a committed believer, someone who was truly committed to following the teachings of, uh, of their leader. And of course, then you have the more technical use of the word disciple referring to those specific 12 that Jesus chose that were his closest companions during the period of his uh, ministry, during the incarnation, uh, during those three years of his active ministry. Now, last time we looked at Peter, a couple of things I didn't mention at, at the end, just to make sure they get out there, is there's very strong evidence from uh, from historical evidence. Now, when we get beyond the Scripture, I want to say a word about how we're looking at some of this because Scripture we know is absolute truth, and we know that that happened. But there is non-scriptural historical evidence that's just as uh, just as accurate as non-scriptural historical evidence today. You go back to the war of northern aggression in the mid-19th century. You go back to the war of uh, American independence in the 18th century. You go back to the wars of the roses in England. You go back to the um, Gallic wars in, um, in Rome, uh, and you have written evidence by those who lived at that time that give us information. Now, for example, in Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we uh, only have a few extant copies, and the most, uh, the oldest of which I think is s- several hundred years, seven or eight hundred years after uh, the time that he wrote. And yet we consider those copies to be accurate, accurate copies, accurate reflections of what he wrote, and that what he wrote from his perspective is a solid historical witness. Just because it was written by a Roman who was obviously prejudiced against the Gauls 
doesn't mean that we dismiss everything that they say out of hand. I say that because I find that there are things written by theologians and monks and other Christians in the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century that because it doesn't seem to be corroborated by anybody else according to modern historiographic standards, it's dismissed out of hand as, as being on the same level as legend. That's not fair. That's not good historiography. We don't have a lot of first-hand documentation of a lot of things we hold to be true historically in that period of time. There just isn't that much that has, has survived. Having said that, we recognize that we can't hold certain views with the same level of absolute certainty because we do have a... Uh, uh, very few witnesses, but there are witnesses. Remember, there were numerous writings, numerous sermons that were written that we do have copies of. We have epistles by, for example, uh, Clement, who was the Bishop of Rome in the 70s to the 90s. Uh, wrote a, uh, Clement wrote a couple of epistles to, to Corinth. Uh, he was a personal acquaintance of Peter and of Paul, and they, there are references in these writings to, to things that happened that they knew about in the lives of the apostles. And there were things that were written down that were available to people like Ignatius and Irenaeus and to um, Eusebius, who wrote at the time of the, uh, around the time of the uh, Nicene. Nicene Conference in Nicene Council around 425, and these were, uh, and they had access to documents that we don't have access to, to today. So we rely upon their writings and what they say. We take th- certain, some things with more of a grain of salt than other things. It's just like when I go to Israel. I talk about the fact that if we go to a certain location, we go to a certain spot that I'll rank things according to a scale of, of one through four. One means that we're pretty sure it's just pure legend. Four means it's pretty sure this is exactly the spot that is spoken about in the Scripture. You know, sites like Jericho, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. I think last time I talked about the, uh, Peter's house. There's inscriptional evidence there that indicates that as early as the the late first century, Christians were making a pilgrimage to that location and writing graffiti on the walls indicating that they had come there, showing that that within uh, 30 or 40 years of the writing of Scripture, people were venerating this house as the house of Peter. That's pretty solid evidence. I mean, that's not the kind of evidence you just scoff at because, well, it doesn't fit whatever view I might have. That's that's pretty pretty good evidence as far as history and archaeology goes. So you you have to validate some things. Some things are a three. Some things are a two. Uh, if it's a one, you just don't pay much attention to it. Having said that, when we get into um, also another thing that we look at is in the uh, lar- there's a large number, a huge number of early church manuscripts. I'm talking about from the period of the first century through about the seventh or eighth century. 
written in Greek and written in Latin that have never been translated. In fact, we've probably translated over uh, no more than about 25% of what we have extant from that period of time. So there's a lot there that has is not available in English or in English, German, or French. It's still in Latin or, or, uh, or Greek, and some of which has not been available to modern scholars because it's hidden away in various Greek monasteries. But we can go back and we discover writings by various uh, uh, early church figures that did have access to these these documents. So we, um, we, we have more information, some of which isn't good. We have to kind of sift it and weigh it and, and be careful. But we do have some ideas about what went on in the early, early church with some of these, um, uh, some of the disciples because the traditions come from different sources, different geographical areas. And even though they may disagree in some details, a lot of times in the general outline, there's a lot of agreement indicating that there's a basic consensus of where a certain apostle went in the latter part of his life, whereas there may have been some stories and some myths and some legends, sort of like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree or the line in the sand at the Alamo, things like that that may be uh, questioned because we don't have quite enough um, uh, firsthand evidence on some of these kinds of things, so they do get debated. So last time I talked about Peter. Peter was married. We know that because Paul talks about Peter traveling with his wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Peter also had a daughter, according to early church records. Both his wife and daughter uh, preceded him in martyrdom, according to uh, church tradition. And uh, while there are some kind of odd little legends and stories about either one of them. I think basically it's, 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 it's probably true that he did have a wife, did have a daughter, and that they did precede him in martyrdom. And his message to both of them was that they were going to meet Jesus, a very positive message. They were going to meet the Lord before him, and so it was viewed as something, uh, something very positive. Now, Peter had a brother named Andrew. And Andrew was actually the first disciple that Jesus called. And I think that, that Andrew probably had a much higher degree of positive volition and spiritual interest than Peter did, at least initially. Uh, he, um, he's the one who left the fishing business initially and went down to join John the Baptist and became one of his disciples. In John chapter 1, verse 35, we're told, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is at the same time when Jesus came. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in that context in John chapter 1. And we're told in John 1.40 that one of the two who heard John speak, that is identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So right there in John chapter 1, we're told that Andrew was originally a disciple of John, John the Baptist and that he heard John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Lamb of God in verse 36, who would take away the sin of the world, and then uh, they began to follow uh, Jesus in John one thirty seven, the two disciples heard him speak. 
That's heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, seeing them follow, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, uh, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. So that's about two, uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> One of the two who heard uh, John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Now, I covered that some last time, but what's interesting here is um, I put this map up here. These are two different maps. The map on the left over here shows these various sites that are suggested as sites where John the Baptist uh, baptized uh, in his ministry. The traditional site is the one that is in the south here, uh, just north of the Dead Sea on the Jordan River. On the last uh, trip we had to Israel in June, we went to this site. It's just been opened up. It's an interesting site, and they, it's, it's down near uh, Bethany on the Jordan, which is uh, believed to have been right on the uh, Jordan side, on the east side of the Jordan River. And so this is considered a traditional site. There's some inscriptional evidence that they found there that supports that view. So this is, I wouldn't say it's a four, it might be a three. So it's it's pretty pretty sure. But that doesn't mean that this was the only place that John baptized. Now, if you look at this map, and if you've been over there to Israel, if you go up north, here is Sithopolis. Sithopolis, named for uh, Scythians who were brought down, who originally colonized that Roman city. It's the only city of what they call the Decapolis, the ten cities, Roman, Roman cities, that were built in this area. The other nine are on the east side of the Jordan over in what is now the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Sithopolis is built just below the tell of, of Beit Shan. Beit Shan was the, was the ancient uh, Canaanite village where when Saul was killed or, or uh, committed suicide on Mount Gilboa in his fight with the Philistines, that the men of Beit Shan came and took his body and the body of Jonathan and, and decapitated them and hung them on the walls of, uh, of Beit Shan. So this, this area is one of the highlights of any trip to Israel because when about 15 to 20 years ago when they uncovered the ruins of the Roman city of Beit Shan or Scythopolis, it is just a remarkable, remarkable site. I mean, it is an incredible place to go to with all the Roman columns and the Roman baths and everything else that's, that's there. But it's about maybe uh, 30 miles or so or 40 miles from Scythopolis down to this site on the Jordan and so it's, they also suggest that there's a couple of locations up further north which would uh, be sites where John may have also baptized. Now, if you look at this map, it doesn't go as far north. The map on the left does not go as far north as the Sea of Galilee. So I added to this slide another map. Here's the Sea of Galilee here. Here's the Jordan flowing south out of the Sea of Galilee. And right here... In this circle, you have Scythopolis. Okay, so here's Scythopolis. On this map, it's here. So you can see that it's about uh, maybe 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. 
the circle on the north side of the Sea of Galilee is Bethsaida. This dot just to the left of it is Capernaum, which is where John, uh, where Peter and Andrew lived. And at the time in Scripture, according to uh, Mark one twenty nine, Peter and Andrew lived together. Now, that is a significant walk to go from Capernaum all the way down, just, not, it, just a, it's, it's probably a good 30 miles to just walk down to one of these northern sites. It's probably close to 70 miles to hike all the way down to, to this uh, lower site down here. And the picture that we see in the scripture is that Jesus goes out to where John the Baptist is, and then uh, they ask him where he lives, and they say, well, come and follow me. And then they follow him back to his home which seems to be either in Nazareth at this time or in, in Capernaum. That would indicate to me that logistically it's got to be a site that would be much, much closer uh, to the Sea of Galilee in order to make it from here over to Nazareth, which is right here, is only a distance of about 20 miles. So that that's a, <clears throat> and up also it's only about uh, 20 miles or less up to Capernaum so that would fit a little better and of course John could have been anywhere up along the sea of Galilee anything like that that ju- I just wanted to get, let you have that geographical orientation there because that's important for understanding what is going on here Andrew is is uh picked out by Jesus here at this point and then he goes and he gets his brother Simon Peter and tells him that they found the Messiah. That's in John 1.41. And to together they come back. Jesus makes his little statement to Peter that you are Simon, the son of Jonah, or Simon Bar-Jonah. Their father's name was Jonah. We don't know for sure the mother's name. And uh, this is where Jesus says, you shall be called Cephas. Now, then they go back to their business. They go back to conducting their business in uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they operated either at this time, they were probably living at Capernaum, although they were originally from Bethsaida. The interesting thing archaeologically is that today the ruins of Bethsaida have been identified. They were identified in the mid-19th century uh, by an archaeologist by the name of Robinson. Those who have been to Israel know Robinson's Arch. He also identified that arch on the... Uh, southwestern wall of the Temple Mount. But he, um, he identified this, but everybody scoffed at him and said it couldn't be because it was about a mile away from the coastline of the Sea of Galilee. But the coastline shifted, and that is clearly identified as Bethsaida today, and so that is uh, the fishing village where they grew up. Sometime after that initial encounter... Jesus comes back, and he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They had a commercial business. They had a fishing boat. It wasn't very large. It was about as long as from uh, the back row there to the front row here. We, have, we know that because uh, back in the uh, 90s, there was an extreme drought on the Sea of Galilee, and the level of the water sunk to a level much lower than it had ever gone before, and they discovered, buried in the mud, a first-century fishing boat. And because of uh, 
this time of year and the water would rise and all these other factors. And once it was exposed to oxygen and oxidation, then the wood would begin to rot and many other factors. And so they uh, brought in a number of archaeologists and scientists and they did a phenomenal job of rescuing this boat. And you can visit it at uh, Nafginasar there on the Sea of Galilee now and see that first century boat. They call it the Jesus boat. And we usually go that every year, go see that every year, and it's uh, it's it's fascinating. But that's uh, about the size of the boats that they had working this, the the nets on the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus gives them the challenge: follow me, and I will make you what fishers of men. Now notice that first word "fisher" is uh, translated in the plural because it's in the plural in the Greek. He's talking to both of them. They will both be evangelists. He will train them to fish, not for fish, but to fish for men. It's a, a metaphor for evangelism, and this would apply to both Peter and Andrew. Now, we don't hear much about Andrew. Andrew was the quiet one. Andrew was the uh, less obvious one, and Andrew was the one who was always mentioned in, in Scripture as Pete, when he's mentioned as Peter's brother. How would you like that if you've got a brother or sister, every time you're mentioned, you're only mentioned in terms of your so-and-so's brother or your, some of you, you know, that's so-and-so's son or some of you recognize it, that now you're so-and-so's mother or so-and-so's father. That's your identity. But for Andrew, Andrew was always, every time he's mentioned just about, he is mentioned as uh, Peter's brother. And he's uh, only mentioned uh, in uh, a few passages. John 1 is one of them and a few other places. But every time you see the mention of all of the disciples going somewhere, he would have been included. Now, he wasn't in that inner circle that were the closest uh, trainer trainees of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John, but he would have been uh, there with all of the others throughout the entire period of the Lord's ministry. And um, he's mentioned in three specific events in Scripture, and I think it's uh, interesting to look at those. Turn with me, since we're in John, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it's on uh, the Sea of Galilee, which actually should be translated uh, a lake, the word therefore in the Greek is thalasso. Thalasso applies to either a body of water that's salt water or fresh water. Fresh water is a lake, salt water is a sea. This is a body of fresh water, but British translators in the 16th century didn't catch the fine, finer distinctions in Greek at the time, so they translated it sea. And the name has stuck. It is Lake Gennesar, or Kenesaret in Hebrew uh, today, and everything there relates to, to that term, not uh, the Sea of Galilee. That is the Christian New Testament hangover. A uh, great multitude followed Jesus because they saw his signs where he performed on those who were diseased and went up on the mountain, and it was at the, near the time of Passover and Philip comes to him in verse 5, and Philip is sort of the logistics guy. He's the, um, he's the S4 among the, um, 
among the disciples, that is in military terms, that's your uh, guy who's in charge of supply, and he's saying, we've got 5,000 here in this multitude, and we don't we can't feed them. They're going to get a little restless here before long. And we need to buy bread and find bread that they can eat. Um, or the Lord says this to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And he's testing Philip to see if he can figure out how, what the logistics test is. The issue is, are you going to trust me to provide for them? This is a uh, going to be one of the great teaching moments in Jesus' ministry. And Philip answers him and says, 200 denarii worth of bread's not sufficient for them. Uh, it's impossible. He's totally focused on human limitations and human means. And that's one of the great problems we all have in life is we focus on limitations and God doesn't have any limitations. And so we always have to learn that God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and we need to trust him to provide the resources that we need for the ministry. Now, Andrew is the one who's actually been out. He's the people person. We see this in a couple of other uh, of, of these situations. He's figured out who's got what, and he knows what's available, and he finds this young boy who has five barley loaves and two small fish, and he doesn't really capture what's going on here, but I think he's got sort of a, a, an instinct in the right direction. And he comes to the Lord and he says, I, well, we don't have anything, but there's just this one kid, and he's got five barley loaves and two, two fish, but that's not really enough to feed everyone. And so then Jesus takes that, has everybody sit down, multiplies the loaves and the fishes, and feeds everyone, showing that he is sufficient for everything. So that gives us one insight into Andrew. Another insight into Andrew takes place a couple of chapters later in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, there are some Greeks who come uh, to Philip uh, asking to uh, visit with Jesus in verse 20. John 12, verse 20. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. That is, these would be Hellenized Jews. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. So Philip is another disciple. Philip, Peter, Andrew are all from Bethsaida. So they're, they're all close. They all know all these disciples. There were different groups that were very close, if not related. They came to Philip, said, well, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew told Phil, uh, uh, and in turn, Andrew and Philip then told Jesus, and Jesus said, well, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So this is again gives us a, a picture of Andrew as being someone who's somewhat close to Jesus and has some uh, leadership uh, uh, traits there because Philip is the, brings these to Andrew to find out what they should do. Okay, and then the uh, other situation, Andrew's listed among those who are questioning Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives in Mark uh, 13 verses 3 through 4. So that's all we know of Andrew in the scriptures. Now, outside of the Bible, we have a fair degree of certainty as to what happened to uh, Andrew. There are several apocryphal writings 
there's the Acts of Andrew, which and some others that are of doubtful historical uh, value. But there are some different traditions that have come up through some different uh, Eastern Orthodox groups, Greek churches, Armenian churches, Syrian churches. These groups have their traditions and have a lot of ancient uh, ancient uh, literature. Several very ancient records, including Eusebius, indicate that Andrew left Judea and then took the gospel north into the area of modern Turkey. And then he went around to the east of the Black Sea and maybe even further north. That is the area of Scythia. He would have left and followed the track of Peter and Paul and Barnabas going north to the church at Antioch. And then he headed north and east going around the eastern end of the Black Sea up into Scythia. It's possible he may have gone completely around because we also find him uh, later on references to him in Ephesus. And, re- and ultimately, and there's agreement across a host of, uh, of different traditions that he is martyred in Greece. Uh, martyred in Greece. So that is per- fairly well documented in Achaia, which is the uh, southern part here, the down the, the uh, uh, Peloponnesian area here. It's where he is eventually martyred. So there's a lot of tradition that way, that he had ministries to the Scythians, took the gospel there, uh, took the gospel into Ephesus, Asia Minor. Remember, Peter goes to Pontus and Bithynia, Phrygia in this uh, northern Galatian area. Uh, Paul and others had ministry in Asia Minor, and apparently uh, Andrew went there as well. Uh, The tradition is that Andrew was martyred at uh, Petraea in Achaia in Greece, that he was first imprisoned, then he was uh, tortured, uh, flayed, and then crucified by order of the proconsul uh, Geates, whose wife, Maximilla, had become estranged from him because she had become a Christian and he was hostile to Christianity. And so he took it out on Andrew. There is a striking tradition that's preserved in the Muratorian Fragment, which is a the earliest list of, not a complete list of all the New Testament books, but it's a, the earliest long list of New Testament books that we have dating from about 170 to 180 A.D., indicating that Andrew and John in in later years were ministering in uh, in Ephesus, and Andrew had a vision that John should write the Gospel of John. We don't know that that's true, but that has uh, uh, that is an ancient witness going back to probably at least the uh, mid-second century. When Andrew was uh, executed and martyred, he was to be crucified. It's interesting, like his brother Peter, he did not think that he should be crucified as their Lord had been crucified. Peter chose to be crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on a Instead of on a cross, it was an X-shaped cross. And that became identified later as St. Andrew's cross. Apparently his grave was known and was visited and venerated by Christians from the first century on. And so by the time of, uh, of Constantine, 
His remains were moved to uh, Constantinople where a shrine was built. It was The construction was begun by Constantine, finished by his son. Uh, from 336 to 356, they built a shrine, and allegedly it contained the remains of uh, Timothy, Luke, and Andrew. Later on, about two centuries later, a Christian by the name of Regulus in the 4th or 5th century took some of the bones. Now, by this time, by the 4th or 5th century, they're starting to worship relics. And so this is a big thing to get the bones of saints. And so it's fairly well documented that Regulus took some of the bones out of the crypt of Andrew and took them with him to Scotland and buried them in Scotland at the site of what is now known as St. Andrew's. And Andrew, that is why Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland and why the Scottish flag had a St. Andrew's cross on it. Now, when you, and I meant to get a picture of this, but when you look at a British flag, it has two crosses on it. The cross with a vertical piece and a horizontal piece is St. George's cross, When Scotland was made part of the the United Kingdom, they added the X cross, which is St. Andrew's cross. Because so many Scots-Irish migrated to the south in the United States during the late 1700s, by the time you got into the 1800s and you had the war between the states, the Confederacy chose as a, their battle flag a flag that had an X cross on it, a St. Andrew's cross, and that came from their Scottish tradition going back all the way to the kind of cross that Andrew was crucified on. See, now you know the rest of the story. Incidentally, there, is a, there were three flags for the Confederacy. Some of you know this. Uh, the, uh, the national flags. The second flag was called uh, the Stainless Banner. It had the uh, St. Andrew's Cross in the uh, upper corner, and the rest was white. But when it was uh, not, uh, when it was furled, when it was just hanging, it looked like a white flag. So it looked like a flag of surrender. And so, in the last three months before the Confederacy fell, they adopted a third flag. That flag was a flag that was never surrendered. They had a vertical, wide vertical red bar on the opposite end from the um, uh, from where they had the cross so that it would be clear that it was not a flag of surrender. The last time I drove through East Texas, this is also known as the flag that was never surrendered. The last time I drove through East Texas, I saw a lot of those flying throughout East Texas. Just to, for those of you who don't get out much, people in East Texas are rabble-rousing again. So we have to be... But all this goes back to St. Andrew's Cross, just a little historical insight on how that was how that was used. So Andrew, apparently, we don't know exactly when he died. It was, uh, is often thought, the consensus of opinion, it was in 69. We don't know exactly uh, the year, but it was, you know, plus or minus one or two years. A number of uh, ancient sources that were used by a 17th century uh, Christian historian indicate that he died on the last day of November, but they're not sure of the year. Now, the other disciple I want to talk about briefly as we end is Bartholomew. You haven't heard much about Bartholomew because there's not much to say about Bartholomew. Bartholomew was one of the 
uh, 12 uh, disciples that Jesus chose, including Judas Iscariot. He's listed in all of the major lists of the 12 apostles, Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 2 through 4, uh, which I have listed, Mark 3, 16 to 19, and Luke 6, 14 to 16, which are uh, parallel passages, as well as in Acts 1, 13. If you look at the screen, I've underlined Bartholomew's name, so it's clear that he's listed in every one of the passages. His name means the son of Tomai, and it is speculated that he was also known by another name because Bartholomew, or son of Tomai, might have been his last name, just as Simon was known as Simon Barjona. Uh, Bartholomew, or Bartholomew, would have been his last name, his patronymic. So he, may, he would have had a first name that may not have been, um, may not have been listed in the... Um, Early part of the um, uh, Middle Ages, it was uh, suggested that he was uh, actually to be identified with Nathaniel, who is brought by Philip to Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 45 to 50. So you can tell we're spending a lot of time looking at passages in John. John 1, uh, we read... Philip found Nathanael, said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Well, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so Nathanael is amazed at this and recognizes the only way Jesus would know this if he were divine and says, you are the Son of God, uh, you are the King of Israel. So uh, it is, has been thought by many, suggested by many, that Bartholomew is Nathaniel, because Nathaniel is not mentioned again, and so this connection uh, has, has, uh, has often been made, and many people do accept that. Uh, I'm not absolutely convinced of it one way or the other, but I do think that that there is a certain amount of circumstantial uh, evidence to that. Uh, Outside of the Gospels and outside of the list of the Apostles, there's no other mention of of Bartholomew. According to Eusebius, Bartholomew uh, traveled to India. India was a a broad term. We think of India as just the land uh, south of uh, Pakistan now, in that time, it included what we now call Pakistan and Afghanistan, and much of that territory was just sort of nebulously known as India uh, in, the, in the ancient world. Uh, Eusebius said that Bartholomew traveled there and that he left the Gospel of Matthew with them in Hebrew. Uh, other traditions talk about Bartholomew as traveling with Philip, as well as Thomas, which would make sense since Thomas is clearly, I think uh, there's clear documentation, Thomas took the gospel to India and established numerous churches that were there. In fact, there is a uh, young lady now who uh, is the Southwest Regional uh, Christian Outreach Director for APAC, who is an ethnic Indian, and on her, I think, I believe it's on her mother's side, uh, they go back hundreds of years in this tradition 
of, of Christians in India tracing their origins back to, to that original group that was evangelized by Thomas. A couple of years ago, I went through a sleep study at a sleep clinic over in Sugarland, and uh, the uh, Indian who was the, uh, leading the sleep study and was supervising me was also from that same tradition. He was a believer. His family roots he traced back for centuries in India back to uh, Thomas, the uh, disciple coming and bringing the gospel to India. So that would make sense that if Bartholomew traveled with uh, the disciple Philip and Thomas, that um, they would go in that area. He was, uh, according to various traditions, he suffered martyrdom in um, in Armenia, and that this is where that he took the gospel to the areas area of Armenia. Let me see. I'll back up to this to the map here. Armenia would be also be in this area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Here is Parthia, and it's just off the edge of this map would be India. So it was to the north and east that Bartholomew would have taken. Uh, taken the gospel. And so we see the gospel continuing to expand as all of the disciples are following the mandate of the Lord Jesus Christ in taking the gospel out, um, out across the world. There's a lot of uh, documentation in different uh, ethnic Christian traditions in that part of the world. In Iran, uh, Christian, there's a tradition among Christian leaders that uh, the first dis, uh, apostle, the first missionary to bring the gospel into Armenia was uh, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, and they are considered to be the first ones to bring the gospel to that particular area. They also believe that, uh, based on a lot of very ancient traditions on their part, that they took the gospel down to Arabia to throughout the Parthian Empire, uh, Persia, and to the borders of, uh, of India, and that eventually uh, Bartholomew was martyred. Now, there are some different traditions as to how he actually died. One has him being crucified. Uh, another has him being stoned, but we're not really sure exactly how uh, he ended up uh, uh, giving his life uh, for, for the Lord, but it is clear from various traditions uh, that he did. According to uh, one uh, tradition that's recorded in Butler's Lives of the Saints, which was a very significant historical work in the um, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Bartholomew was, um, was taken and he was uh, flayed alive by the barbarians under the uh, at the command of King Astyages in the uh, Parthian Empire in the city of Albanopolis. Now, those terms and those locations show up in whatever the traditions are. They all end up putting his martyrdom in the same location. Other details change, but the basic idea of him being martyred uh, for uh, his uh, gospel uh, success by the leaders in the Parthian Empire at Albanopolis uh, are, con are consistent. So that is all that we know about what happened to Bartholomew. And then we have uh, James. And um, 
I'll wait till the next time to talk about James because then we can cover all the Jameses at one time. We have James, uh, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder. We have James the less. We have James, the son of Alphaeus. We have James the just, James the brother of the Lord. They're not all different people. Some of them are just different names. We have James, who is the brother of the Lord, who was called a camel knees because he had calluses on his knees because he knelt in prayer so much. So they have different nicknames and different uh, attributions, but they there were at least three different James who were significant. James, the brother of John, we basically studied him already. He is the first martyr. He is the one that is martyred by uh, 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 by uh, Herod uh, Agrippa the first, who then is uh, whose life is taken not long after that in a, uh, a sin unto death manner. And then we'll come back and look at the other uh, the other Jameses uh, next time. And uh, some of these are going to go real quick because outside of uh, out of outside of John. We really don't know that much about the others, but it's interesting to kind of see how they moved around and to learn uh, something about them because it's not that we don't know anything. We probably know the general outline of their lives and their ministry. It's just that some of the details are embellished. Some of the details became legend, but um, uh, and we have to kind of discount some of that. But I think we do have the general trajectory that, that most of them carried the gospel into very hostile locations and they were willing to give their lives completely for the gospel, even to the point of death. Let's close, uh, close our eyes and bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we can reflect upon the apostles. And as we come to this time in our nation's history of thanksgiving and as we reflect upon the Christian heritage, a wonderful, tremendous Christian heritage that we have of those, um, those men and women who came over on the, on the Mayflower and many others who came on subsequent voyages, Puritans who came to New England, uh, Anglicans who came to the Middle Colonies, the Scots-Irish who came to the Southern Atlantic Colonies, and they all had a strong view of Scripture. They may have had some uh, denominational differences, but they understood the importance of the Word of God as the foundation of freedom and the foundation for a rich future of prosperity. Father, that foundation has been under attack for the last 200 or more years because we live in the devil's world, and the devil hates freedom and the devil hates the truth of your word more than anything. And, Father, we live at a time in our nation's history when it seems that we may have, have finally completed the turn of a corner. And it looks somewhat dark. It looks somewhat distressing for many people. But as long as you are on your throne, there is always hope. Even in the deepest, darkest, distressing times of the uh, Assyrian Empire, God, you and your grace sent Jonah with the gospel to the Assyrians in Nineveh, and they changed their mind and they turned back to you. And that can still happen in this country. And so we're thankful for our heritage. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the wonderful uh, gifts that you give us that we can know the word of God and know you and, and learn from so many well-trained pastor teachers in this country that in spite of the negatives, there is still light, there is still the proclamation of truth, 
and our hope is still in you. It is not in politics. It is not in the arm of flesh, but it is in your word and in the power of the gospel. And it is that power of the gospel that changed the Roman Empire. It is the power of the gospel that changed Western civilization. And it is the power of the gospel that changed and established this nation because men and women believed it, proclaimed it, and lived it. And we wish to follow in their footsteps. And we pray that during this time of holiday, this time of Thanksgiving, that we would put our focus upon you and think of creative ways that we can introduce these spiritual truths and this spiritual focus into our families uh, during this uh, holiday season. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.